No one, least of all Andy Dunn, could have predicted that he would wind up naked and writhing on the floor of Bellevue Hospital's psychiatric emergency ward in New York in the throes of a massive bipolar episode, nor that when he would be released from Bellevue a week later that he would be arrested on charges of assaulting his then-girlfriend and her mother. I was in an ascending state of mood. I had a psychotic break from reality at some stage on that upward ascent and ended up having a, a violent spell where I was trying to basically leave my apartment to go save the world. I wasn't wearing clothing. I was ranting and raving. I was howling at the moon. I alternately thought I might be the American president or Batman. Hello, everyone. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. That night was a spectacular fall from grace for Andy Dunn, then the CEO and co-founder of the massively successful e-commerce-driven menswear brand Bonobos. It was the most consequential, but not the first time that Dunn had wound up in terrible situations during his nearly two-decade battle against bipolar disorder, all the while leading, scaling, and ultimately selling Bonobos to Walmart. I'm delighted to welcome Andy Dunn, author of Burn Rate, Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind. Andy, welcome to When It Mattered. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, what an incredible introduction. I want to start with that night of chaos, violence, and utter insanity, I guess, uh, in 2016, at the end of which you ended up uh, uh, you know, naked on the floor of the emergency room at Bellevue Hospital, famous for its psychiatric care. Tell us what happened and how you not only ended up in the psych ward, but also managed to get yourself arrested afterwards. Yeah, you know, mania is characterized by delusions of grandeur, messianic zeal, psychosis, generally impaired judgment, perhaps the suspension of judgment, suspension of things that are important to the ongoing function of the body. So for me, stopping eating, stopping drinking water, anything else, and probably most problematically stopping sleeping. And so we believe I was up, you know, across different episodes I've experienced anywhere between two and five nights in a row. And that 2016 episode was no different. I was in an ascending state of mood. I had a psychotic break from reality at some stage on that upward ascent and ended up having a, a violent spell where I was trying to basically leave my apartment to go save the world. I wasn't wearing clothing. I was ranting and raving. I was howling at the moon. I alternately thought I might be the American president or Batman. You know, these are and theoretically humiliating things to talk about. Um, but part of the process of therapy has enabled me to share what this manic episode, uh, what this manic state is like. And unfortunately, and maybe fortunately, the, the only way down typically is a hospitalization where you can be in a safe space uh, where you can't harm others or yourself or where you can be you know, pumped. And I mean that in a benevolent sense with medication and brought back to reality. And so I'm I'm so grateful to my now wife and mother-in-law who helped get me to the hospital by calling 911. I'm grateful to the police officers who subdued me and brought me to Bellevue and then the people at Bellevue, both in the psychiatric emergency room, which is a very unique capability. It's an ER focused on people in the throes of psychiatric issues and then up on the ward. And over the course of a week, I was brought back to health I was able to come to grips with something that I'd been diagnosed with 16 years earlier, and I was finally ready to go deal with it um, and walked out into handcuffs for, uh, for the violent episode that I had no recollection of. And, and that's really when the journey began uh, from there. Now, you were arrested. What were you arrested for? And tell us what happened in that apartment that led to that arrest. Yeah, so I was arrested for felony assault and misdemeanor assault, a felony assault of a senior citizen, which is my now mother-in-law, a remarkable person, uh, and my now wife, Manuela. And effectively what happened was in the psychotic state, I saw Manuela coming towards me. I thought that she was coming to harm me. I then blacked out. And my next recollection is walking around um, in circles around our apartment, bleeding. Um, I had hit my, hand, my head on a doorway. I had punched a window pane with a very thick glass and left a, a crater bulge in it. 
And what I would later find out is that I had both struck Manuela as well as pushed um, my now mother-in-law to the ground, pushed and kicked her. And so while I don't have a recollection of those events in the middle, perhaps because they're too painful to process, maybe they'll be with me one day later. Uh, I only learned of that upon discharge. And then the next week was really moving in and out of the legal system to figure out whether this would be viewed as a, um, a manic incident, a psychotic incident, or an issue of domestic violence. And I was so fortunate that both Manuela and her mom described it as what they thought was a mental health issue. The psychiatric assessment confirmed that. And ultimately, with a lot of credit to the city of New York and the state of New York, they don't take that at face value. They wait about six months before officially dismissing and expunging a case like this one. And so it was a, a hellish half year figuring out you know, what was going to be the outcome of the case legally. Was I going to lose my girlfriend, the, the first real enduring partnership I'd been in, was I going to lose my job? You know, I was nine years into building Bonobos. I had over 500 employees. Um, and was I going to regain my health? So it was a, it was a very difficult year from, from that arrest. Yeah, it's really interesting how protective the state of New York and I guess other states are towards the victims, in this case, your uh, girlfriend and Manuela, and then girlfriend, now your wife, Manuela, and her mother, uh, because you had a restraining order on you that prevented you actually from seeing her for a while. So it, they were very, very protective of, of them. But while all this was going on, you also were dealing with a very critical stage of Bonobos's growth, uh, right? I mean, you were just juggling all of these things. And I guess some of the stress from one thing led to sort of the results of the other. But tell us where you were in Bonobos's growth at that moment. Yeah, we were, you know, nine years into building the company. We had over a hundred million dollar business. We had a corporate team of approaching 200 people. We had this next generation retail store model, a fit to ship model that we had invented. We had over 50 of those stores. So it was a large, you know, a large-ish enterprise. And I can remember being discharged from Bellevue through this legal process. And I insisted perhaps to reclaim some sense of normalcy on coming back to work. And, you know, I was just two days out of Bellevue. I had bandages on my hand. And I had to call a board meeting as a first step and let the board know precisely what had happened. This diagnosis that I'd received 16 years earlier that I'd been in denial of, the episode of violence, um, the stay at Bellevue. And it was a remarkable phone call. As you might imagine, it was a terrifying phone call to place. I had no idea what was going to happen. And one of our lead directors, um, a man named Joel Peterson, spoke first. And he said, Andy, I understand this is an issue that I've known a lot of people to face. I've known a lot of entrepreneurs and leaders who have dealt with this issue. You know, his first question was, how, how is Manuela doing? And then, you know, how are you doing? And it was a remarkable display of humanity and an affirmation um, that this was, this was something that he understood, set the tone for the call. And I explained that I had found a great doctor that I was taking medication daily, in some cases, several kinds of medication, that I was seeing that psychiatrist uh, who's also a psychotherapist and a psychopharmacologist, so really a wonderful person who I was privileged to find and to be able to afford, and that I was in a great treatment regimen, um, that frankly, I was quite depressed, you know, the low that follows the high high, but that I was committed to getting healthy, getting through the legal process, protecting the company from harm insofar as I could, you know, hired a crisis PR firm in case there was news of the arrest. And, you know, we lost control of the story and the narrative, you know, these headlines become the story in this day and age. And so, you know, I was just terrified that, you know, it would be something that would, would come out before I had a chance to process it myself and to explain what happened. And in a lot of ways, burn rate is, a memoir built on wanting to share and disclose what these challenges with severe mental illness can look like to normalize that conversation and hopefully provide a, a small nudge as a part of a broader series of conversations that are unfolding uh, to folks to, to share and particularly for leaders 
in entrepreneurs who are in positions of privilege to share what they're dealing with. Yeah, you mentioned Joel Peterson, and he's just one of the many, I think, heroes in this book, right? I mean, one of the things that's very clear in this book, uh, Burn Rate, is that the heroes are the people who, you know, are dealing with the consequences of your behavior, right? Your parents, your sister, who's amazing, Monica, your Manuela, and your friends, your co-founder. I mean, all around you were people that you were dealing with, either in the throes of sort of this hypomania or in the throes of depression. And it's just this remarkable sort of these character sketches of these these heroes in this book. I've been so fortunate. I mean, the the scaffolding and infrastructure of love and support and caring and honesty around me, you've got it exactly right. I mean, I have a nuclear family who at first when I was diagnosed, you know, we sought to disbelieve um, the diagnosis. We had some exchanges with the diagnosing psychiatrist that led to some downstream confusion. Um, and then nevertheless, they managed to help help me stay healthy over the years. And when the final uh, denouement, the second episode, major episode happened, everyone was jolted to life. And so my sister and my mom and dad, as you point out, rallied around the senior executive team of Bonobos, who I disclosed to was incredible, as well as the board. My mother-in-law, you know, who picture the last time I saw her, I was naked and assaulted her. And the next time I saw her, when I got out of Bellevue, we sat down at a restaurant in New York. I had no idea what to expect. I thought she might say, you know, this is the last time we'll see each other. And I thought she might say, you know, you're not in a, you're not in a position of health to continue a relationship with my daughter. Instead, she put her hand on my hand and she said, Andy, this is just like diabetes. This is an illness that you have to deal with. You need to see a doctor and take your medication. And as long as you do those things, you're welcome to see Manuela from my vantage point, you know, as long as she wants to continue to see you. And the tears just started streaming down my face to be accepted by one's own family as a gift when, when facing crises and facing issues like this one, to be accepted by someone else's family, no less the mother of a woman who you've just assaulted was an extraordinary act of grace for me, uh, redemption. And really it inspired me. It redoubled my desire to stay healthy and to make a commitment to her that I would never put her or her daughter through this again um, to the best of my ability. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your first episode. And I guess it was 2000, right? When you were at Northwestern University as a student, that's when the journey began. And it sort of shows this long arc that patients with mental illness have, go through before they can actually get the right kind of help, right? Tell us what happened and what triggered that. Yeah, so I was a senior in college. I really think in a lot of ways, you know, had fallen in love in a meaningful way for the first time. And this is one of the pernicious things about mania is it can often be triggered by good things or positive things in our life, uh, the birth of a child or a an event, a good financial event, or in this case, a relationship uh, of some import. And so it was the turn of the new year at that point, actually, it was the turn of the millennium from 1999 to 2000. I was drinking a lot, um, you know, drinking nightly. I was smoking a fair amount of pot. I had been using mushrooms uh, a bit earlier, which would, which would play into the narrative problematically. Uh, but basically, I was in a great mood and um, partying a lot. And against that backdrop, started to ascend into a state that is called hypomania. And hypomania is really mania's antecedent. You're still plugged into reality, um, but you're very excitable. So elevated patterns of speech, a lot of vision, a high amount of optimism, often contagious amounts of positive energy, a little bit of irritability. You might be, you know, I would be difficult to disagree with. The lights are shining pretty bright. You know, the eyes are open a little wider and it can be very kinetic. And frankly, it can be attractive to other people. Um, in theory, it's virtually indistinguishable from what we expect from an entrepreneur who's having a good day. Now, I wasn't an entrepreneur at the time. I was a college student. And I remember watching a TV show that showed um, a bunch of folks who were waiting 
for the turn of the new year because they believed that it portended the arrival of the Messiah. And somehow, at some point in my manic state, I decided that was me. Uh, and by the way, it's very exciting for a period of time to think that you can save the world. It's a, it's a very seductive state to be in. I was very ashamed that that had happened for a long time until my, my now doctor reminds me that, you know, everyone wishes that they were God at some point. It's the stuff of um, superhero movie culture. It's the stuff of children's literature. You know, it's always about some neglected child or an orphan who turns out to have special powers. Well, the scary thing is that in mania, you can actually come to believe that narrative. And often it's driven by some profound senses of injustice about the world, whether that's homelessness or poverty and inequality, or the way that some of us are so well off and others have little or nothing. These feelings that we have to find a way to live with day to day, they can come gurgling over. And for me, I was at a Burger King in the middle of the night and, you know, talking about delivering a sermon on inequality and all these things it just all surged forward. And the problematic thing with being the Messiah is there's a lot to do. <laughs> so, you know, I stopped sleeping. I figured I, at some point I made the, the mental, uh, I came to the conclusion that I didn't actually need to sleep, that I didn't have, you know, normal bodily needs or functions. And in a way, mania can support that narrative because if you stop eating, you use the bathroom less. If you stop drinking water, you, you don't need to urinate. And if you have a brain that's going 10,000 miles an hour, um, you can't actually fall asleep without medication. Your, your brain sort of detaches from your body. And that's what happened. Um, and so I ended up in the hospital, thanks to the clever intervention of my roommates who got me home to my family. My mom actually worked at a hospital as an ultrasound supervisor, ultrasound tech. I ended up at that very hospital where I had been a candy striper, where I had worked part-time, which added to the humiliation upon exit um, because I knew that people, many people knew that I'd been there. I spent a week there. They brought me back down to earth, so to speak. And upon discharge, I was diagnosed with this thing. I'd never heard of it before, bipolar disorder type one. And the words hit me just like a sledgehammer. I didn't know what it meant. Uh, it sounded like I was disorderly forever. It sounded as if I was just possessing of two mood states, you know, bipolar, what does that mean? And I spent a little bit of time learning about it afterwards. And that, that was even more terrifying. You know, I learned that this incident of mania I'd lived through could come back at any time. It could be back in two weeks. It could be back in 20 years. It's like a bomb or a volcano in my brain that could go off without warning. And then on the flip side, depression and a depression so profound as it might come that it leads to extraordinary rates of suicide. You know, the suicide rate for bipolar one is 19%. The suicide attempt rate is 60%. And so what 20-year-old kid who is having, you know, the time of their lives in college, you know, one, one day, you know, the next day wants to take on this diagnosis. And unfortunately, I didn't. Um, and our family collectively chose to hang our hats on the mushrooms that I'd used as the reason for the psychotic break. And, you know, then thus the denial began. And some of it is cultural as well, right? Your mother is from India. I'm from India, so I can say that without judgment. And a lot of the attitude towards mental illness in Indian culture, where I grew up, I grew up in India and came here to go to grad school. So I was there for my formative years. And so I know that it's a very difficult topic to discuss in Indian families. It's very easy to sweep it under the rug, to hide it even from your own relatives. Um, and, and I think that played from what your book says a little bit of a, quite a bit of a role in sort of how this was initially handled all the way up to almost the end when you actually sort of sat your parents down and had kind of a, a confrontation slash intervention, uh, a gentle one where you explained the impact that it had on your life. Yeah, I mean, it was terrible. It was terrible because the the table setting, as you point out, amongst a Indian 
American family, uh, Indian immigrants to the U.S. so frequently, um, the ones let in, you know, doctors and engineers and otherwise. My family was was littered with doctors, um, but all of the focus was on, you know, physical medical issues, not on the mental so- mental health side. And so I can remember, you know, in the throes of depression, many years later, telling one of my uncles that I was extremely depressed, I couldn't get out of bed. And he simply said to me, you know, you have a hard job. There was a desire to explain it away. And then on my dad's side, no less, you know, Scandinavian, Midwestern, there actually was a history of mental illness in the family. My dad's mother, my paternal grandmother had been institutionalized twice, um, one time for weeks and another time for months. Remarkably, her husband had become a psychiatrist, we think now. They were both World War II heroes. He became a psychiatrist after the war, the theory being to treat my grandmother, which isn't the healthiest arrangement. And in fact, when she was committed, it was her own husband, my paternal grandfather, who committed her. And so we had this history in the family, direct history with mental illness. We don't know if it was bipolar disorder. It sounds perhaps like it was a bit different. We'll never know. Um, But we should have known that this was possible. We we should have known what could be of of someone who um, is having psychosis or depression or otherwise. But instead, there was a learned family norm to not talk about it. And my dad's very open in his own story, his own book about his parents' wartime romance in the aftermath, that whenever my grandmother came back from the hospital, uh, everyone pretended, and the, the tone was set by my dad's parents, that everything was fine. It was important to not talk about or revisit what had happened. And so what compounded that challenge was that the diagnosing psychiatrist said to my parents and my sister, you know, if Andy doesn't have another issue for five years, it could be that this was a one-time psychotic break. The drugs may have had something to do with it. I was on a powerful acne medication called Accutane, which was thought to perhaps have some correlation to psychiatric issues. And our family clung to those words like a life raft. And so as I, being a immature 20-year-old, rebellious, in denial patient does, stopped taking medication, stopped, you know, I only saw an outpatient doctor one time, I refused to go back, all too common. The only strategy was to hope it didn't come back um, and for everyone to keep close tabs on me, which my my mom and sister did. I mean, they would talk to me every day. And I think a part of that was trying to ascertain, was I well or not? And then the worst possible thing happened, which was, which was nothing. I was asymptomatic entirely from mania and depression for about eight years. And that led us to conclude that those words of the diagnosing psychiatrist were prescient, that in fact, it wasn't bipolar disorder, it was a one-off event. And, and of course, tragically, and in many ways, catastrophically, that wasn't true. You know, you talk a little bit about how this hypomania part of the disorder, you know, that kind of hypomania, and then the, that manic energy that you had before you would come down, actually was super helpful for you in, in building bonobos, you know, that energy and that sort of that confidence, overconfidence, because you were having to raise millions and millions of dollars over a period of time, and convincing bigger and bigger investors to to go along with your vision of Bonobos that you had co-founded. And that when, you know, you didn't like it when the meds actually brought you down so much and it deadened you internally, it killed your appetite, it killed your drive, it made you want to sleep all the time. So how was it to try to like manage all that while building Bonobos and raising millions of dollars and doing all of that? It was complicated. It was complicated in that the hypomanic state where I did have so much energy and so much drive and so much, whether on point or not, so much vision and so many ideas, that was like jet fuel for being a founding CEO. You know, I I felt like I could get so much done and I had so much optimism. And I think it, it was attractive. I think it was part of how I was able to 
attract talent and capital, which are two of the most important things you do as an entrepreneur. And at the same time, I think it made me maddening to work with because lots of ideas and over time, a desire to do new things at a rate that wasn't possible for the, the organization to bear, uh, a lack of focus, um, a strong ability to say, let's go do this new thing, but challenges with the execution, which of course is a, is a common problem with entrepreneurs. You know, we're, we're driven to distraction by the world so much that we want to put something new in it. And then often once we put something new in it, that company, we became bored with it, become bored with it and try to do new things with it. And so those are the pros and cons of hypomania. And then the depression, right? Which is, for me, I was catatonic. I would struggle to make it to work. I would be able to do maybe 20 or 30 hours of work in a week, which is insufficient uh, to do one's job, let alone be a CEO. I would schedule naps during the day. I would take business trips and sleep 75% of the hours. And then on the weekends, the same thing. You know, I might go to bed at 7 p.m. on a Friday and wake up at 4 p.m. the next day. And, you know, when you've slept 23 hours in a row, even when you wake up, it's like you're the walking dead. And then I would muscle my way to work on Monday and try to show up a little bit. But the team, I think, experienced me at those times. And it was accurate as an absentee CEO. So here's this leader who's in and they're on and they're all over the place and they're inspiring and they're maddening. And then they're just gone. And those states would alternate, let's say four or five months of hypomania with a few months of depression and back and forth. And during the hypomanic phases, I would be able to get so much done that it would, it would cover for, you know, the dead zone, so to speak. And, you know, more or less, that was how I ran the company for the first eight years until it came to a head. And you, your life was bookended it, between coffee and, and uh, alcohol. It just seemed like there was this, this, you know, it was just a stark reminder of how much on the edge you were. You're absolutely right. I was a, I was a substance abuser uh, to get through it. I would drink six or eight cups of coffee um, from when I woke up through maybe 5 p.m., and then by six or seven, I would have a meeting over drinks or a dinner, and I would just dive into alcohol. And, you know, it wasn't a glass of wine or a beer. It would be um, bourbon Manhattan or rum on the rocks or rum and Diet Coke or what have you. And then I'd have three, five, seven, ten drinks. Usually a meeting would lead to a dinner. A dinner would lead to a, an after-dinner drink. Maybe I'd go out on a date or be out with friends frequently then till one, two in the morning. And this is not, this is not a good regimen, but the way that it worked is that because alcohol is a depressant, it acted as a mood stabilizer and an insulator from the hypomania turning into mania. So I would have all this energy that would potentially take me off the rails, but I would plow that into socializing, socializing with alcohol which would bring me back to the ground. It would you know, get me to sleep, of course, often a poor night's sleep off of drinking. But that was part of the way that I stayed in bounds when I was in the hypomanic state. Um, and of course, a much better answer is actual uh, psychiatric medication. But that takes acceptance of the illness to be able to pursue. And as we've talked about, I didn't have that at that time. Yeah, and and when you were in these these phases, you had expansive appetite. So I was I was just chuckling when I read the part about you wouldn't just have one steak entree; you'd have like multiple entrees. Uh, it would be like one thing after another. It just seemed like there was this huge appetite for things, including alcohol and food, and and then you would crash. Yeah, I mean, it was everything to the extreme. It was um, everything but two or three times beyond what, what would have been in bounds. You know, you mentioned food and alcohol and frequently spending money, promiscuity. All these things are typical of the hypomanic state. 
And it kind of, uh, you saw that next encounter that you had with it in that 2015 episode in Las Vegas, uh, which I guess was a year before Bellevue. Can you describe what happened in Las Vegas where, again, you know, that God syndrome also came in and you were like, uh, you know, wanting to give away your Rolex watch, among other things? Yeah, I, uh, it, it, I think in a lot of ways it was like the the warning before the storm or, you know, the the inverse of an aftershock to an earthquake, the trembling. So I'm in Las Vegas. I'm there on a business trip. I had a speaking engagement that I was very excited about. You know, one of my heroes was Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, who's obviously now gone. And it's its, its own parable uh, about mental health and about addiction. And I felt in a lot of ways like I had arrived. You know, I had this guy had been my idol and now I was speaking at his conference and I think speaking right before him. And I was so excited that I stayed up all night the night before I started to somehow allow irrational thoughts into my brain. It's sort of like uh, we all have irrational thoughts. Sanity is not the absence of having them. It's the discarding of them. And at some point, I stopped discarding irrational thoughts. And on the flight from New York to Vegas, I was just sure the plane was going to crash. That was the irrational thought. It wasn't, you know, maybe some of us, you have a fear of flying, there's a bit of turbulence or the pilot says something. You start to get fearful or paranoid. For me, it was beyond that. I knew it was over. You know, my life was coming to an end. And then when the plane landed, you know, I had, I had, profound gratitude as if reborn, as if I'd been given a second chance. And as a part of that, as you mentioned, a similar religious fervor and messianic ideation. And one of the things that happens in a messianic state is you have no need for physical possessions. You see them, you know, it's, it's silly. Why would someone have a Rolex? Why would they have a watch that has a slightly different make or design? It's got a name on it. It, it becomes almost a, a signal of the sickness of our society that such, such a thing even exists. And I remember walking around downtown Vegas and seeing you know, people who, who didn't appear to have homes, people who didn't you know, appear to not have much to eat. And I thought, here I am walking around with a, with a $10,000 watch, like this is, this is broken that society operates this way. And so I tried to give it away to a couple people and they looked at me appropriately, like I was, uh, had lost my mind because I had, and almost, I don't know if it was a joke or if it was a test or what they thought, but they, they declined. This was my mental state and it deteriorated from there. Somehow I ended up flying back to Chicago, which is not where I lived, to my family. I think I had some kind of a homing pigeon, I don't know, that said, go home. I created this narrative that my mom had cancer, which she didn't, and that I needed to help her. And they, although they didn't figure out how to connect it to my break from 2000 and to get the right psychiatric help, somehow found a way to bring me back through sleep medication. So with so many doctors in the family, someone fired up an ambient prescription. They watched me closely. And with sleep, I just somehow averted full-blown mania. And over the course of a couple of days, came back to earth. And during that time, I changed my Facebook status to engaged. Um, the likes were pouring in and Manuela was living in Beijing at the time. And she said, wait, we're engaged. I didn't know that. So, you know, it was right on the edge of um, losing it and got reeled back in. So, yeah, this was the uh, this was the preamble to what would come in full force a year later. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's it's extraordinary that looking back that you actually made it through, right? You made it through. I mean, you've had suicidal ideation, which is quite common, as you said, the high suicide rates, the alcohol abuse, the drugs, the, you know, it is extraordinary that you made it over to the other side and 
with this incredible support of your, your family and friends. I mean, do you look back and you wonder how you are alive at this moment? Yeah, I think so. I think that most people like me don't make it this far, or, or if not most, many. I think that, I don't know, the life expectancy, you know, for bipolar one, specifically without medication and treatment, it can't be, uh, it can't be good. And I just am, you know, I'm so lucky on the dimensions we've explored and on others, and particularly the development and advancement of medicines to treat and contain this issue. You know, my doctor says now, when someone goes into the hospital, a young person so frequently with psychosis, he says, you know, we pray for bipolar disorder um, compared to other illnesses, schizophrenia, very, very difficult issue. Bipolar disorder is the one that he prays for because it's so eminently treatable with acceptance and with access to care. Even from the year 2000, you know, over two decades, the advancements in the medications um, is extraordinary. And so I take a mood stabilizer every day. It, it's a wonderful medication. My doctor jokes that it should be in the water and that helps keep me in bounds. And then, you know, there's an antipsychotic that I have that we can use to snuff out um, any hypomanic um, spiral. There is an antidepressant, which I'm very fortunate to be able to use if I need it. Generally, there's a fear with people who have bipolar one that an antidepressant can slingshot them into mania, which is true. In my case, it has to be combined with an increased dosage of the mood stabilizer, and we found a way to make that work. So I'm so fortunate to have not only the family love, but also the pharmacological and the medical help. And those things together, I think, make me make me very, very lucky. And the fact that I made it through the 16 years where I was unmedicated, where I was untreated is a testament to uh, a lot of fortune and, and good luck. And in my book, I thank my niece um, who arrived in 2010 and I was made her godparent. And I remember thinking as much as I don't wanna leave, uh, leave the world, um, her, my role as her godparent, it tethered me to no matter what, I can't let her down. Because uh, if God forbid something happens to my sister and her husband, I'm responsible. And to leave would be to, you know, violate or betray that duty. And so there was something tethering me. And I'm, I'm so, as you point out, so fortunate to have made it through, hopefully, the hardest parts of the journey. Yeah. Do you think there is a lot of mental illness in in Silicon Valley, in the tech space? Do you think that maybe that's some of it contributes this this combination of megalomania and hubris and confidence and bluster, you know, all of that kind of contributes to making these great startups? Yeah, I mean, I can speak to bipolar disorder because the UCSF studies this. I mean, we're talking about an illness that is three to 4% of the general population. And the research shows that it indexes perhaps seven to one in entrepreneurs. So that might be one in five entrepreneurs with bipolar disorder. That doesn't strike me as surprising just from... I don't know, being around people where I notice similar traits. Uh, I think we all do. Narcissistic personality and, you know, personality disorder. I think, I mean, my gosh, the incidence of that's got to be pretty high. Partly because, you know, why, why would you believe you could put something in the world and start something that no one else has without a lot of narcissism? And I think we can just turn on Hulu or you know, one of these other streaming networks or pick up a few books to see what happens when narcissism runs amok. And then we have unipolar depression. Let's not forget that. Depression is a, is a terrible illness, even without the bipolar varietal where you have the mania. Maybe it's in some ways even worse. You don't have access to the, the upper moods 
but you get the low um, suicide we've seen with a number of entrepreneurs um, who are no longer with us. And then we have the autism spectrum. Um, we have Asperger's, which people, courageous people, you know, like Greta Thunberg, Elon Musk has disclosed now anxiety, panic disorders, illnesses, OCD, borderline personality. You know, I think our society is riddled with these issues. There's no family that's untouched. Um, and I, I think in Silicon Valley, the tech community, whether it's causation or correlation, it is even more prominent. Um, I want to, as we start wrapping up, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about what got you into Bellevue. We talked about what happened when you came out of Bellevue. I'd love for you to describe just a little bit what happened when you were in Bellevue, and then we'll go a year later to what happened in 2017, which was sort of then got you on the, you know, the turn for the better. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I have a question about sort of, you know, just having you look back on your life a little bit. So yeah, talk a little bit about what happened when you ended up in Bellevue, a place where you probably never, ever imagined you would have been. Yeah, I spent, you know, I think two or three days in CPAP, which is the psychiatric emergency room. I, I have memories of um, throwing a tray of food on someone. I have memories of you know, drinking a, a jug, a taste of a jug of urine, um, putting my own feces into a bag by the door, writhing on the ground, um, naked under a sheet, you know, picturing terrible things. There were thoughts in my mind of, you know, the earth being consumed in a flood. Um, I was certain that rising water levels were gonna, were gonna soon kill billions of people, you know, from climate change. I thought I had a huge role to play when I got out. Um, I don't know, some kind of a Noah's Ark like fantasy. I remember thinking about, you know, needing to lead climate refugees from areas of low lying land to higher ground, um, places like Bangladesh or Florida, where you hear, you know, what a bad state those places might be in if there is global water level rise. So all over the place, intermingled with perhaps rational fears, catastrophically imagined though, and, and then with the grandiose ideas about a role as a change agent or a world leader or a savior. And then what would happen is day by day, I would get a little bit better, a little bit more of a moments of inhabiting a more rational plane. And at some point, um, a few days in, it was deemed, you know, that I was in better enough of shape to move up to a psychiatric ward. And in the ward, you know, you share a room with someone, you know, you have time behind, not closed doors, but semi-closed doors, you know, you can't lock the door of your shower. There's a lot of thought put into making sure there's nothing where you can harm yourself or others. I remember as I started to get visits from my family when they could come in, Monica, my sister asked me if I wanted anything. I had this book I really wanted her to bring in, H is for Hawk. I had a hardcover copy at home. And at some point she broke down crying and said she couldn't bring that one. And I realized it's because they don't allow hardcover books, only paperback books for fear that someone might harm themselves or someone else with a hardcover book. And then, you know, the same thing, day by day, more medication, more sleep, a lot of you know sleep medication they're tracking that and by about day 6 i was more or less back to inhabiting a rational plane and after i think another day or two of monitoring me they you know they discharged me um, and released me into the world and as we've talked about unfortunately the um, that that didn't mean i got to just walk free i ended up going straight to jail Yes. And then a year later, you had your last major bout that you talk about in the book that in which your parents went from being essentially very sympathetic, caring, loving bystanders to like participants in the most painful way. Describe what happened. 
Yeah, it was it was just over a year later. You know, I was on the precipice of getting married. It was six weeks out from my wedding. I was in the middle of a deal process to to sell the company. You know, we were under a letter of intent for three hundred million dollars. And you know, similar to previous manic events, I think it was triggered by joy. The upcoming wedding, I had a night, a number of nights of low sleep, and then an all nighter, which is a very bad sign. I'd actually taken sleep medication and still not slept, which is a double whammy. And I concealed it from my parents, and at some point um, started failing to filter out irrational thoughts. And I thought, you know, I needed to kill myself to become immortal. I tried to scale a fence so that I might impale myself on the top of it. My dad in his early 70s at that point summoned a, you know, superhero strength, was able to pin me to the ground. Um, I had been walking arm in arm with my parents. They were trying to direct me to their hotel to get me, you know, off the streets. Um, I threw my mom off me. Um, she hit that fence um, with her head. It was just a terrible scene. And it was like history repeating itself. And then a really strange thing happened that my psychiatrist to this day can't understand, which is, you know, once I got to the hospital, um, I somehow, and partly I remember just being terrified of being admitted again, I somehow clawed my way back to rational thinking. Um, I returned to sanity. We don't know why. I, I think probably, and we think probably it was because I, I did have medication, you know, coursing through my veins. So it was kind of a, it was a micro break and it, you know, I was able to share with them that I had a doctor's appointment that day, which is true. And they discharged me into the care of my doctor. And my parents then lived with me for the next week. Um, Manuela was out of town for work. They slept foot to foot um, in our apartment. My doctor increased the dosage of my medication, uh, an increased level of dosage that, you know, continues to this day. We increased the frequency with which I was seeing him from two to three days a week. And my mom had a, a really a genius innovation, which is noticing how frequently sleep was either a leading or a lagging indicator of mental health issues for me. Um, she, she demanded that I send a daily sleep report to my doctor, to Manuela, to herself and to my sister. And so I wear a Fitbit every night to sleep. I wake up in the morning. I screenshot the number of hours I've slept, the REM. There's a little rating on the quality of the sleep. And I, I share that with everyone so that there's just an increased level of vigilance around, okay, if the sleep is going down, I might be ascending in mood. If the sleep is going up, for me, that means I'm headed towards a depressive state. You know, my doctor says there's two kinds of depression, can't sleep and can't get out of bed. I'm the can't get out of bed varietal. And so that episode in 2017 was really a reminder that there's no room for complacency with severe mental illness. There's no room for complacency with bipolar disorder type one. It's never over. You, you're always working on it. You're always, you always need to be vigilant. You need to be in constant uh, treatment and constant state of transparency with both your physician or therapist and loved ones. And, you know, certainly in my case, as for many, you know, medication is a part of your day for the rest of your life. Yeah. And do you think that that moment on the street where you you had pushed your mother, she had fallen down, your father is literally, uh, you're, he's elderly, as you said, but he's holding you down on the street while your mother is asking a, bystander, a concerned bystander to call 911 and that it's a mental health emergency. She's screaming. Uh, do you think that finally shook them out of, you know, well, he needs more sleep uh, out of a, sort of their denial state into, oh my God, you know, this, we have to do something about this forever. I think the shaking out of the denial had happened the previous year. And this is from talking to my mom and really interviewing her for the book. I think what it did was it just, it, it led to a unhealthy levels of um, self-recrimination for my mom. You know, I think she felt a scorching guilt 
for for years well first of all knowing that something wasn't right for 22 years right but then it's almost worse being in denial of it because then you're not really sure what you're dealing with it you can't face it so i think those 16 years between diagnosis and acceptance were were awful i think what made the 2017 incident additionally awful was this feeling of I know he's got this issue. I know he's taking care of it and it still came back and it came back, you know, right under their noses because they were with me. And it just made it very scary and it doubled and tripled the self-flagellation on all fronts. And it uncorked at that time conversations that we'd never had, not about the illness, but around our feelings at ha of having lived with it as a family my mom's feelings around having processed so many years of worry and having a rebellious son who you know wasn't so easy to deal with was good at hiding things and then for my part um the shame that i felt and the anger that i felt for the fact that we hadn't talked about it you know shame is something that we shame is what is unspeakable because if you can say it there's nothing to be ashamed of and I had internalized a lot of shame and as a result, a lot of anger. And so it ended up being a blessing that we got to start to process that. And really the book in, in its own form has been a blessing to have more conversations that I think most families never get to have, uh, let alone with the, with the benefit of having a doctor who's helped me you know, rebuild my own self-understanding and process so much. And so for me, the book is also a, I'm going to say everything because it's going to help me prove to myself and others that there's nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to mental illness. It's not our fault. You know, it's not, it's not your fault if you have a mental illness. The thing that we can hold ourselves accountable for is not dealing with it and not accepting it. And that's part of why I wanted to put this out there because I think 16 years is too long between diagnosis and acceptance. You know, you said you in that you, you felt like you had to say everything. And one of the things you've done in this book that I think is so remarkable, but also I know must have been incredibly painful was to talk about all the bridges that you burned with your colleagues, with your co-founder, with your senior executive staff, with the board, with the investors. You know, you, you burned a lot of bridges by your own accounting. Has this helped you heal some of those relationships or, or has it been, what's it been like for them to read? Well, I know you put some of this book together with their help because you don't remember a lot of it. So how, how has this process been in healing or not healing those those broken relationships? I think it's been amazing. You know, I think there's people who found me difficult to deal with, but where I felt like they were extremely loyal and there still was a lot of mutual affinity and love. I think, you know, one of my proudest moments is going on Glassdoor nine years into Bonobos and seeing a 95% approval rating. But I, I think it's also unhealthy to crave that or want that. You know, there was, um, I don't know, there was something, a mixture of insecurity and lovability. And I think there are people that respected me in a lot of ways as a leader too. And then, and then some broken relationships along the way, right? The challenges with my co-founder or executives who I fired, one board member who I fired, who I still haven't talked to. So it was a segmentation of experiences. I think in some cases it was healing to connect with people where there had been those broken relationships, but more, more of it was around, I think, demystifying what had been going on for a lot of people that had had to, you know, had to deal with me through that, or maybe in spite of that affinity and, and also some more complicated emotions like, you know, how could you not share this with me? Or what did I do wrong that I didn't know? Or I feel so guilty that I, I you know, I wasn't more helpful. So it was all a part of it. And I think the truth is, is that for most lives, um, one doesn't have the good fortune to have an excuse to go have a few dozen conversations or a multiple there, thereof. 
Um, and so it was, it was enormously affirming and um, redemptive and healing to go on that journey of uh, having those conversations in the act of writing this. When you asked them, what did I do? And they told you what you did. Did you just, what was that moment like, those revelations of what you had done? Was it like, like, I did what, you know? <laughs> what was that mo- What were those moments like? I mean, for me, it, it got easier. Like each conversation got easier. The first one is mortifying. And then as they went, it's like you kind of develop a muscle for sharing these intimate details or these horrific details of your life, traumatic details. And what, what I came to realize was it, it doesn't radically alter someone else's life to share this news. It's like you sort of, I held onto this narrative that it would just change everything. And the truth is that no one else is thinking about us all the time. You know, they're thinking about themselves, (laughs) which is why we tend, I think, to overestimate how much we're going to rock someone else's world. So while I think that there are momentous disclosures that matter, you know, in a few hours or the next day, someone's going to be back to thinking about themselves. (laughs) So I think that was one lesson is don't, don't hide things by overestimating their impact on others. And then I would say also don't underestimate underestimate how empathetic other people will be when it comes to vulnerable disclosure. You know, I think vulner, vulnerability is far more connecting than really anything else in terms of sharing positive or negative emotions. You know, negative emotions are the fuel for reciprocal negative emotions and positive emotions, you know, great or could inspire some envy. But our vulnerability is, I think, um, the greatest source of our authenticity and power if we can be so fortunate to bring it forward and share it. Andy, looking back at your younger self, at that senior in college who, who was starting to realize there was something really wrong with him and and all of those incarnations of yourself as you, as you battled with this uh, really, really um, sort of a self-destructive uh, disorder Uh, and then finding resolution for it, what would you say to your younger self about this journey that you've been on? I I think the first thing I would say is it's going to be okay. The second thing I would say is you are not the illness. You have the illness. And I think that's one of the tough things with mental illness and bipolar disorder is we, particular is we can tend to confuse and conflate the illness with the identity. In fact, we even say he is bipolar. It's like, well, no, he has bipolar. We would never say he is cancer. That would be a terrible thing to say. He is cancer. Can you imagine feeling like you actually were cancer? And yet that's exactly what we do with bipolar disorder. And so I would have reminded myself that this isn't the defining thing about me. Um, and to, that it's, it's treatable, but you've got to deal with it. You can't, you can't protect yourself from something that you pretend isn't there. Andy, thank you so much for joining me on When It Mattered and for this fascinating conversation. It's been such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Andy Dunn is the author of Burn Rate, Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind. Burn Rate is a painfully honest, sometimes terrifying, and incredibly inspiring memoir of Dunn's nearly two-decade battle against bipolar disorder, all the while co-founding and scaling the massively successful e-commerce-driven menswear brand Bonobos, later acquired by Walmart. In parallel narratives, Dunn uses his own battles against bipolar disorder to place tech startup founders under an unsparing lens as he explores the prevalence of mental illness in Silicon Valley. And he brilliantly parses the fine line between inspired genius and megalomania and narcissism that are common traits among some of these exponentially successful entrepreneurs. As an angel investor and through his own venture fund, Red Swan, Don has backed more than 200 startups, including Warby Parker, Dia and & Company, and Coinbase. He serves on the boards of several startups and was named to Fortune 40 Under 40 list in 2018. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. 
Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.